We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Big Blue Banter Podcast. Here with myself and my co-host, Nick Turchin, here to break down the latest in breaking in Giants news and here to talk about the Giants win and what we saw in the All-22. I can't believe I'm saying it, but yes, the Giants win over the San Francisco 49ers on Monday Night Football to close out Week 10, but we saw an All-22 there. A little bit of a preview of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game coming up uh, for the Giants, who are now 2-7. and seven. And, a few, and we'll also touch on a few of the hot topics from this week. Uh, but let's start off how we usually do by throwing it over to Nick. How are you doing today, Nick? Doing good, doing good. The snow is coming down pretty hard. This is Thursday night, so it's uh, good to be inside, and it's real football weather now for sure. Dude, I am snowed in completely. I tried digging my car out earlier. I wanted to go to the gym, get some errands done. I, uh, I got a good friend's wedding tomorrow, uh, Saturday, and there's a big whole weekend to do about it because I'm in the, I'm one of the groomsmen for it. So I had to get a bunch done today and I was able to get none of it done because my car won't move and I live down a hill. So got a little bit of problems going on. So I'm happy to kind of divert from those and talk a little Giants football today. Yeah, uh, definitely. Let's go right into it. Um, I want to start with some, with some quick hits, some news and topics. Um, so on Wednesday, Pat Shermer, basically when you read the transcript and you, when you listen back to what he was saying, essentially hinted and essentially just said straight outright that Corey Coleman, the wide receiver the Giants signed originally to their practice squad and then to their active roster, you know, former 2016 15th overall pick, 437 vertical speed, extremely quick. Some people compared him to Odell Beckham Jr. in that draft class. I didn't see it, but I did see those comparisons. 437, 41-inch vert, awesome broad jump, excellent production at Baylor, uh, obviously in the Big 12, so that take that for what you will. Um, but what Shermer hinted at is basically this. Listen, he said it, he's way far behind on the eight ball. He wasn't here with us during camp. He wasn't here with us for most of the first half of the season. There's just a lot of schematic things and, and checks at the line of scrimmage and different play calling things that he needs to learn before the Giants feel like, before Shermer feels like he can play him a full compliment, you know, 30, 40, 50 snaps in a game. But he said, it's going to get there. He said, you know, once we feel comfortable with that, he basically said he'll be the starter. Read the quote yourself. But he also said the good news is for now, while he is learning, we can basically put him in for everything he knows and maximize his snaps for the things he does know. I mean, now listen, he only played eight offensive snaps against the 49ers, but he made them count on that third and long. When was the last time we saw this Giants? It feels like forever since we saw this Giants offense uh, complete a third, and I believe it was a third and 11 earlier in the first half. They completed a, the 12-yard uh, route uh, where Coleman made a really good play, I thought, to come back to the football. 
And obviously, as Nick, as you broke down on Twitter, uh, Eli Manning made a great play on that play, actually anticipating the break and throwing the football before Coleman even got out of his break. Um, so excellent play all around. One of his eight snaps there. Also made a massive impact on special teams. Had a couple back by penalty. Can't blame him for that. But at the same time, that let, that final uh, kick return that got the ball almost out to the 50 really sparked a score for the Giants and really played a key role after the game. Odell Beckham kind of pinpointed that play and talked about how important it was for them. And so Coleman will be the starter at some point in the 2018 season. I'm pretty confident about that. How soon? Just depends how fast he picks up the playbook. What do you think about that, Nick? What have you seen from Coleman? Do you believe that maybe it's possible the Giants can kind of find, re, you know, revi- help revive this guy's career? Super talented player. Yeah, very talented. I want to see a few more vertical routes to see if he can add that element of stretching the defense um, and uh, you know uh, down the field. Um, I you know I like that curl route like I broke down, um, and then you mentioned uh, and definitely yeah, I think that it's something where at this point you know they need a wide receiver three. They need a wide receiver three with a couple of different elements to you know that 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 like, different from what Beckham and and Shepard has. You know, right now the way the way the whole this whole thing's stepping up, Shepard's by far the best route runner. OBJ is obviously OBJ, but I think from a vertical, you know, take the top off the defense perspective, that could be a real, a real good threat there. Yeah. And just to be clear, because I did kind of paraphrase there, Shermer said, you can use him as sort of a role player until he can handle the full load. And that's what we'll do. That to me reads like he will eventually be in there. And Shermer points to how energetic he was, how really into it he was trying to learn everything, how his teammates have taken well to him. So I'm definitely excited about his potential to be that number three receiver and other news Jonathan Stewart, the running back signing, the much maligned running back signing by just about everyone with 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 a brain who was watching football last year, at least for the price they signed him to. Um, you know, was not a big fan of the signing. He is returned, has returned to practice on Thursday. He is eligible to be taken off injured reserve. He was on injured reserve um, with the eligibility of returning this season. Giants still have time to make that decision. Um, to me, Nick. From what I saw in the first half of the season, from what I saw by looking at the Giants roster, really for how few plays the Giants really had for running backs other than Barkley. I mean, over the past four games, Gallman's played less than 10 snaps, fewer than 10 snaps in three of the four games. So, like, it's just that at this point, like, I don't think Stewart should take a roster spot of anyone. If you want to give him Cameron Cameron Moore's roster spot, the fourth safety, fine, I guess. Uh, Maybe Stewart can make an impact on special teams that Moore can't. But that even seems like a stretch based on the fact that Stewart, you know, Stewart's current skill set doesn't really project him as an excellent special teams player. What do you think, Nick? Is it worth bringing uh, Stewart back up to the roster for the uh, end of the 2018 season? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think a lot of people are looking more toward to see what Robert Martin had. If you wanted to get into that week, you know, 14, 15, 16, whatever down the road type thing where you want to start seeing what people have. I don't really need to see Stewart running any more gap schemes. I know he's a, you know, adequate to solid upside for a gap scheme runner. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really get it. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, there, there maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's just X, Y and Z. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't I don't get it really. Yeah, and the good news for that, at least, is that the way the contract was structured, the Giants can pretty much get out of it completely scot-free this offseason. They'll take a $250,000 dead cap hit, but the rest of that cap is coming back to them. That's going to be $2.6 million more million the Giants will add to their salary cap. So that's certainly the good news when it comes to that signing. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I mean, I just don't see him making an impact. In other news, Curtis Riley, the Giants starting for safety, who's played pretty much every single defensive snap this season, um, obviously takes a lot of heat on Giants Twitter. Nick has defended him before. I don't know if he if he's still in that boat. We'll find out in a second. But he did not practice Wednesday. I haven't gotten the full report yet back for Thursday. Um, but, you know, he's dealing with an injury where he might not start uh, this week. Do you think that that could open things up for Sean Chandler? Or what, what do you, what do you, where, where are you at right now with, with Riley, Nick? Uh, seeing some good progress, uh, seeing some good development in some areas. You know, a lot of guys are talking about the goal line missed tackle, you know, where – He's shown before this is a bad habit in terms of not wrapping up, in terms of poor pad level, and in terms of an angle that wasn't, you know, really the best in short area in the goal line. It's the second time this happened this season. We get the area. What I've seen in the in the bigger misses in in poor angles, he's been underestimating speed. So it's kind of specific. The one just one thing I just want to under, to make clear again, coaches are okay coaching mistakes that are that are coachable that are, you know, technical in nature that you can help guys with angles, like all corners transitioning to, to safety, although it's a yearly thing for him now, it's just, that's this part of the game. He's played his entire career or the, his life as football player on the outside. So um, 
you know, the, the issue I think, or what coaches like is they like his physicality and they like, and that's the, the common trait for all these guys that we're talking about from Sean Chandler down to right down to Grant Haley too, by the way, even though he's undersized, it's, it's still, it's still there. So uh, I think it's something where whether or not I, I'm still in the train of, you know, they're going to probably go get a higher price center field safety. They're still going to have guys like this on board. He's going to compete with Chandler and everyone else for, for slot spots for, you know, that second safety, that boundary safety spot. Um, and I, I, I think it, it'll be, a, if he doesn't go, it'll be a mix of Thomas and um, Thomas is okay, but his range isn't great. Right. And, and it'll be Thomas or Chandler. I bet that that's how they'll try it at first. It's, it's not Chandler's kind of go-to spot in terms of range, but I think he's, he's, he's more suited than Haley. Yeah, neither player actually of those two has like the, the ideal range you're looking for, right? But right. at this time, I mean, Thomas actually has, at least according to pro football focus, done really well in pass coverage over the past two weeks when his snaps have increased. So that's something to keep an eye on if Riley can't go. And I think it'll be a lot easier said than done to actually find that maybe higher priced, deep center field range safety because it's kind of a position to me like offensive tackle in the NFL where you just don't really find it ever on the free agent market. The Giants did it once with Antrell Roll back in the day, and they did a really good job there. Converted, kind of converted him almost. I mean, he was playing safety, but he had played cornerback and safety, and they had a good role for him. But it's very rare, in my opinion, that teams find free safe, good free safeties on the free agent market. I mean, the Eagles did it with Rodney McLeod, but it's really, it doesn't happen often. So that's a position they may have to look into the draft. And again, they did just draft someone, unfortunately, who they expected to fill this role for years to come in the third round with Darian Thompson, but that didn't work out. I mean. And the other thing too, just to kind of jump into McLeod, like he's a really good player, but the, if you could take the his profile is not that dissimilar from Riley. Now people are gonna, what do you mean? McLeod's almost a pro bowler, but McLeod misses tackles. McLeod takes poor angles at times. So these are mistakes that even pro bowlers make. And I understand that that the Giants fans don't want to see him, and they're often on the ends of touchdowns. But in the end, you know, you have you know good secondaries like the Eagles they had last year. They missed a lot of tackles on those type similar type plays. So it's something that the entire league struggles with. To Dan's point, it's like then there's no real, real free range, you know, big group of guys that can that can come in here and automatically fill this position. They're the everyone wants the box safety hybrids now, and so that's what the Giants are kind of almost grooming a little bit for the for the small crop of undrafted free agents they have now. Yeah, and for all the crap they've taken for not having a center field safety, there really haven't been that many deep. Uh, touchdown passes or even deep passing plays at all completed against the Giants if you look at it, which is crazy now because we're nine weeks into the season and the Giants don't have much of a pass rush. So, I mean, that it, it's hard to completely blame them when you think of that. Um, in other news, Jason Fitzgerald of Over the Cap put out a really interesting stat, I thought, today, where he said that the Giants have the fewest players remaining in the NFL currently that were drafted by the Giants, 31 players. Um, right there, right then and there, that stat means a lot to me. In my opinion, the NFL draft is 80, 85, 90, I don't know, at least 80% of what makes a winning roster in the NFL. When you find a player in the draft, you have them at a, at a team-friendly salary cap cost for four years. If you draft them in the second round, under a million for four years against the cap. That's unbelievable. Guys like Jonathan Stewart and Rhett Ellison are four million against the cap for for comparison's sake. You know what I mean? And then it's not just that. It's the fact that you can re-sign those guys to second deals at a reasonable age and they already know the system. They're already there in the locker room and you can build on the chemistry from what they've already brought. You don't have to teach them, you know, you're not bringing in guys that you have to teach a new scheme to or you have to teach all these new things to. Uh, or, or, you know, find if it's a skill position player, you don't have to get him on the same page as the quarterback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you have a team that has 31 players remaining that were drafted by your friend, or I'm sorry, when your franchise has 31 players remaining that you drafted in the NFL right now, and it is the fewest of any NFL roster, well, that just brings it back to me in that argument that, you know, Eli Manning's the reason the Giants have struggled over the past three years. Some people on Giants Twitter are making this argument. And to me, it's just a terrible argument because how is a quarterback more responsible for a team's winning, uh, for a team's success, wins and losses than a general manager? If you truly believe that, then I don't think I can ever get through to you. But to me, it's not even close. A general manager plays a much bigger factor in uh, a team's wins and losses than a quarterback position does. And quite frankly, if you look at all the objective measures, Jerry Reese was one of, if not the worst general manager over the past decade, and maybe not the worst. Obviously, there's the Browns, there's the Jets, there's those teams. But at the same time, he was one of the worst, and I think it's played a big factor. What do you What do you make kind of of that kind of um that stat that uh, Jason Fitzgerald of Over the Cap found? You no, know, I think that they have to. It's like it's like to new beginnings at this point. You know, like you have to. 
you have to commit to cultivating depth, however that comes. I think I think I think Dan's right in terms of the free agency being wary of free agents, but you need the good lower price free agents to help fill those depth those depth you can't get in the draft. So that it's a combo of both, and that and and finding that as an art, it's certainly not what they've had as as Dan is saying over the last few years. So now it's like, okay, are they going to fully commit to that and cultivate? growing people at different positions, or is it going to be just a kind of half, you know, uh, a half-assed effort, to be honest, to doing that and, and maybe trying to focus on But now? I, we'll see. But in, in the general, this is just a huge turnover that's still going on and is still going to take time to kind of work through. Yeah. And even those like lower tiered free agent guys, the, you can definitely hit on them, Nick, but I almost feel like the hit rate is, is, is higher for the guys who get like a bad PR rep, a bad narrative, the guys that like Belichick picks up rather than the guys without it, because Guys without it are just players that the team that the original team that the team who originally drafted them decided weren't worth a second contract, despite the fact that they've been in the building for so long and they know the scheme and the system. So to me, that's always an immediate red flag with these free agents. Um, even the 2016 free agent spending spree the Giants went on under Jerry Meet Reese in 2016 when they won 11 games, that spending spree was largely credited, and you know. He was celebrated for it almost, Reese, and there was a lot of good press around it. But now it's only two years later, and you see that the, that spending spree is having massive, massive negative impact on the roster. Giants have already had to trade two of those players from that spree, Jason Pierre-Paul, Damon Harrison. The other two, nobody wanted at the trade deadline, Janoris Jenkins and Olivier Vernon, due to their contracts. And next season, those guys will account for $35.5 million of the Giants' 2019 salary cap space. And let's be honest, neither player is playing dominant football right now. Vernon's all right. He's healthy now. He's all right, but he's always injured. Jenkins, not having a good season. Both are only going to be a year older next year with a, a, one more year of wear and tear. So agency is not the way to do it. I'm not breaking any ground here. Everyone knows that. But, you know, it just plays a big factor for those who are blaming it all on Eli Manning, where this team is at right now. To me, it's just – I just – I can't get on board with that. But – uh, one more thing to go into before we get into the all 22 review. And this actually could, you know, even classify as a part of it. Um, Pat Shermer gave an explanation for the third and goal play from the San Francisco game. Obviously it didn't come back to haunt the giants in that game. They ended up settling for a field goal on fourth and goal, but it could have come, come back to haunt them in another game. There've been plenty of games this season that ended in a score or, or less than a score or a little bit over one score. And in those games, the Giants kicked a lot of field goals when they could have kicked touchdowns. And so Shermer's explanation for the play, in my opinion, uh, wasn't a great explanation. He basically said, you know, we had that – it was a walk-in touchdown if Spencer Pulley doesn't blow his block and his assignment on that play. And while that's true, when you look back, it was poorly blocked and Pulley made a, you know, an error that would have been – if he doesn't make if, – if he makes a simple block there, it's a touchdown for sure. But at the same time, it's a lock touchdown if you audible and check out of that. Uh, and throw the ball to Odell Beckham Jr. Um, so I don't know where you stood on this play, Nick, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. I think it's hard. I mean, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to to go with this. So just to start from kind of like the beginning, if if you're Manning and you got trips left, and if you watch this play, he's got three receivers to the left side of the play. The very inner slot receiver has no one over top of him. So what that term is is there's no cover down. The, the, there's no defensive back covering down. Covering down is how far a defensive back or a linebacker moves out to cover to cover down the wide receivers that are out in the in the formation. So there's no one covering down. So let's just start off right off the bat. Manning definitely saw it because he checked the play or he changed something about the play by making that hand signal to his chin underneath his chin. If you saw that in the pre-snap on the all 22, so he's changing something about the play. He's either, in my opinion, it's either there's two plays called and he's picking one, which happens often in the red zone or he's changing the direction of the play. Either way, he's fully recognizing that there's no cover down to Odell Beckham. In my opinion, it's not on him because that's, although that in some, in some ways you could say, hey, uh, any quarterback can make that throw. You're talking about the options that he was given. You're talking about the game plan. We have a lot of incomplete information here. We're talking about the, 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 what they were trying to establish, which is inside zone which is an easy inside game run based upon the numbers that they had on the left side. People are doing the box count. Like it's seven on six. It was four on four on the left side. Um, I'm not, I don't like the play call in general. I have more of a problem with the play call and what, what they're doing in the red zone than I do with Manning who doesn't have a quick release throwing to an area where Fred Warner is the guy who is not covering down and effectively has blown his assignment on Odell Beckham. Like, 
I'm not saying I, I don't know if Eli can make that throw, but I don't think it's a no brainer. And it's just a quick thing to check out of like, what if it was a, what if the defensive end blooded off and he's right. in the throwing lane? Like that? <laughs> then, then you're crucifying Eli Manning. Yeah. That's an interception. And then, right. And, and so I get in this whole area where it's like, you know, I know people want like an ultimate answer and an ultimate blame game. I, this isn't like a blame game thing. I mean, some guys want him to throw it. Some coaches may want him to throw it. I think, I think that if you go into this whole red zone package and you start from the scratch, where I think it sucks is that he Manning doesn't Manning has a run play where he doesn't have a pass play tag to it. So it's not an RPO. So he can't get the flexibility down there sucks. Right. And so, and so that, so like, again, I, 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 their running game is not good enough to do that. I wrote a whole piece on it and I still believe that I still believe that to be true. Um, and it's just one of those things. I, I have a bigger problem with that than I do with, hey, the quarterback missed a quote unquote easy touchdown. So did so Spencer Pulley. And I don't think he, I don't think he made a mistake on the block. I think the nose tackle did a great job in, in basically derailing him from climbing to Warner and blocking him. Schwartz at um, the Athletic, he thought differently. He thought he, he had ID'd the wrong guy. So it's interesting, just different points of view. Um, but either way, Pulley doesn't get the job done. And so I'm more on that line of like, you know, I don't like the play call, but they think they had the right play call nonetheless, even if it's executed right. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I think we, I can agree with that. But to another point of, of a recent article you wrote that we actually talked about on the last Big Blue Banter podcast, and that was uh, last week when we discussed that Nate Solder on film on All-22 has been a lot better than the narrative suggests on Giants Twitter. And what do you know? Nate Solder has his best game of the season uh, against the 49ers. According to Pro Football Focus, uh, he had the, the highest grade of any offensive tackle last week. And according to Pro Football Focus, since week six, Solder has been the second highest graded offensive tackle in the NFL since week six. So now that's not a large sample size, but if you can keep building on it, then, then we can start th- talking about it a little bit more. Because last season, what do you know? From week nine through week 17 with the New England Patriots last season, Nate Solder was the second highest graded offensive tackle in the NFL. And so maybe, just maybe he's a slow starter. Who knows? Nick, what have you seen? You know, what did you see from Solder against the 49ers? And did it build on kind of what you saw from earlier this season? Yeah, I think the piece, um, yes, it did a little bit. And the piece got into the very technicals of, of blocking, specifically the style that Solder enjoys being 6'8 and 325 pounds. And I think one of the funniest things when you scout guys is I think as a fan initially, it's kind of like all the linemen are pretty similar. But then when you really start to scout and see the differences, there's like massive differences in not only just size and weight, but um, body type to what their, where their athleticism lies, if it's in their hands and their feet, what drives them as a blocker. There's, it's like a whole basically science. And um, one thing that was pretty apparent from any tape that you've watched going way back on as long back, back far as you want on Solder is that Solder, when he vertical sets, that is when he retreats in the backfield kind of straight back and tries to block from a, a, a basically a narrow pocket if you want to think it that way where the tackles set the depth at that point and they do anyway for for basically all pockets when he does that he he he's it's it's not his strength he doesn't anchor well from a basically a static position there are many um there are many tackles that do this very well that are 340 pounds and their lower bodies are like you know they're like basically like i don't know they're like tree trunks and just those guys do very very well that was a big thing actually side note of mike solari Mike Solari is like the biggest vertical set guy on the planet. And so there's all different, there's all different ways to skin a cat. And that's the way he's, he's, he's going to get. So what to get back to Solder, Solder's very good at what's called angle setting or basically jump or quick setting. And that's getting after the guys basically as quick as possible. Now, why? Because he's 6'8", he's 325. He's got really long arms. He's got really good use of hands. His feet are very athletic, but they're not, what's the way to say it? They're not like, they're, very, they're athletic, but they're not like insanely quick. I don't know, whatever it is, he, he gets after guys very well. So in run blocking, when he's moving forward, he's very good. It's the same thing in passing, in pass attack. So when he angle sets, so he takes his first kick step out on a 45-degree angle, he's been really pretty good. That This does lead to him running guys off past Manning's left a little bit. And that can be a little distracting for a quarterback to get used to. But that's kind of his style, and that's but the style of the offensive coordinator, up, sorry, the offensive line coach up in New England, that's what he, that's how he teaches. So right. long story, sorry, to, get, to cut to the chase, what we want to see is more jump sets from him when he can, and then, you know, less vertical sets, or at least not getting caught in vertical sets. What was happening is when the Giants were so afraid of stunts, they were vertical setting, and so it was leading this kind of like not a good, basically, 
you know, not a good. He, he wasn't he wasn't synced up as well with uh, with with uh, with Hernandez, and that's what I specifically saw this game. They both were very aggressive, and so I think if they stay on this this kind of that mantra, and it's buying into it, it's it, it's kind of like a school of thought. I think I think they're they're pretty effective. When teams want to stunt, it's when they're going to have to kind of figure things out again. And for for whatever reason, most of the stunts were on the other side of the field. The other side of the line against uh, against this game. So anyway, I, I'm, I saw that technicality. It was not a simple thing of looking at the box score. He has given up a lot of sacks. He had a few blown assignments earlier in the year. There's a few things that were just you know your mistakes, and guys are going to make mistakes. But I like him long long term with the right with the coach that can maximize that those those that skill set that he has. No doubt, Nick, and I, and I think you made a good point. He learned from one of the best offensive line coaches in the in the NFL, Dante Sarnacki, up in New England. Literally just churning out elite O-lines every year, no matter who they lose to injuries or free agency or whatever on that offensive line. And I do agree that a lot of those sacks were not on him. I mean, I said it earlier in the year. I think a lot of those were just kind of a quarterback and offensive tackle not really on the same page. And that there's nobody's fault. That's just what's going to happen when you play, when you protect for Tom Brady for, for your whole entire career. And then you go to a completely different quarterback with Eli Manning. But as far as what you said uh, about the stunts, that actually leads to my next point for starters. I'll tell you why these stunts came on the other side, because that's where they've been able to crush the Giants all year, uh, stunting against the right guard and right tackle. But at the same time, there was finally – it's week nine. Uh, you know, this is a problem that started week one of the 2017 season versus the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night, Sunday night football. But now it's week nine, and the Giants finally picked up a stunt. Jamon Brown, uh, Giants starting right guard, started 12 days after being claimed off of waivers. But remember, he started all 17 games for the Rams last season. And he picked up an ex- he did an excellent job picking up a stunt um, on the Giants' first scoring drive that gave Manning that extra second throw a touchdown pass to Odell Beckham Jr. I wanted to follow up on Brown and what you saw from him in his first start with the Giants. He did a, he did a, he did, it was interesting. He did a very good job. Well, he did a good job. It looked like a preseason game for him because he was overwhelmed at times to bull rushes. Uh, It wasn't perfect. I think it was almost like now, I think from a sentiment perspective, Twitter may be a little high on him. (laughs) I think he's, I think he's gonna be very good. I think, like I said, I think he's going to, I really do think he's going to be the biggest free agent probably acquisition this year including Street in terms of the next two to three years. Maybe I'll be dead wrong with that, whatever, who knows. But I, I, I liked what I saw. What was really interesting is what you see is like, he's also going up against DeForest Buckner, who by the way is like the biggest freak show of an athlete. So it was pretty tough starting off assignment where he's getting used to Wheeler. You could see communication was not perfect on some plays, um, you know, but overall definitely liked it, liked the run game. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of just getting started. It's going to get better. Yeah, and again, listen, like like you said, I mean, he did earn a, a poor grade from Pro Football Focus for what it's worth. I know we don't always go fully into that, but that I mean, he's not a perfect player. We know that. You're not going to pick up an all-pro on waivers in the NFL. That's pretty obvious to anyone who's followed the sport, but he is somebody who could maybe fill in as a solution. Now, re-signing the soft season is not going to be as easy as re-signing somebody like Corey Coleman because Corey Coleman's a restricted free agent. Jamon Brown is an unrestricted free agent. But at the same time, they should be able to bring him back in. And as far as what's going to be that biggest free agent acquisition, I'm going to go wild card, Nick. I know this is going off on a bit of a tangent, but I like Coleman as that. I love his skill set, love his skill set at Baylor. I think he just needed to get his head on straight. And I think actually and this is going to be a, hot, a bit of a hot take. I think playing with Odell Beckham Jr. will actually help him. I think he'll work out with him this summer uh, and spring, and I think they'll really get together and will really help him unlock that you know, the mentality you need to be one of the NFL's best receivers. I don't think Corey Coleman will be one of the NFL's best receivers for the Giants. That's probably a bit of a leap. But you know what? He's got the talent, and he was really good at Baylor. So I wouldn't completely rule out him being an impact player for this Giants team moving forward. Um, But we'll move on. Um, Giants obviously found a lot more success on offense in the second half of the game versus the 49ers versus the first half. What did you see that kind of helped lead to that offensive success? And then I'll dive into kind of things that I've seen. They uh, they really kind of came out balls to the wall in the second half and wanted to push the ball down the field and ran some twenty one person play action ran some Yankee concept just just very simple stuff uh, and you know I think it was successful you, you saw it stall out in the fourth quarter early in the fourth quarter again with just kind of miscues and miscues and that kind of leads to the whole overall game which was pretty Jekyll and high again. I think, but not, you know, obviously good enough for the win, but it's just one of those things where there is a, there's plenty of mistakes. There are plenty of good throws. Um, and so, but yeah, what I liked is 
it was the first time in a while that I've seen a second half where they come out and it's like, okay, they actually made a decision and then, you know, wanted to attack a, a very simplified cover three structure um, and, and doing it better than, and I, I know, probably jumping into this too much but i think the opening script was pretty boring and just kind of like i know Shermer likes to ease some of his quarterbacks into it but you know they that was a let me put this nicely that was like a script for a rookie um and so from a passing perspective and so i don't know what's happening if the playbook seems to be shrinking a little bit and I think it's because of Manning, because I think he wants to simplify things for Manning. And that is what it is, right? It doesn't have to be complex. But I just I don't get that part of it where you come out after two weeks and you know you've been you've been gearing up for one team for two weeks and you know you're running scat concepts. Like I get I get how that's a cover three beater, but like there's just I, I, I thought there'd be more. And it, it it evolved a little bit, but it was pretty it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, and I mean they made a big point of it during this week um, after the win of saying, you know, we wanted to get to balance on offense, run the football a lot. There was a ton of runs on second and 10, something I'll never advocate for, especially with this offensive line, um, not only for what that could do for you on second and 10 when you run it, but also what that puts you put, what place that puts you in on third down after it. But the point is they wanted to get the balance going. That's something that they feel is important. Um, and there were things I liked and there were things I didn't like about the play calling. I mean, in the second half, there were some really good calls. That The, the Ingram 31-yard gain on the final drive was a really good play set up by what Shermer saw the 49ers were doing in coverage. You can't say it any other way. I really liked, you know, the back-to-back go routes to Odell Beckham Jr., the one that led to a, a touchdown. Just really smart, quick decision by Eli. I like to see him do that a lot more often. I like to see him take one, two – I think it was a two-step, two or three steps and just fire the ball. I'd like to see that a lot more often. Put the ball up for Beckham because – Good things happen when you do. There was another. There was another hour route to Saquon Barkley that went, led to a big play. Started to do a lot of the things we wanted, and you know, definitely got in some more interesting play calls in the second half. But there's still some things that I have issues with Nick. Um, I just don't understand why this team doesn't use no huddle, hurry up on the first possession, and then the third possession, or maybe the second and the fourth, or the first and the fourth. Like it's just. There, there needs to be more of, uh, you know, more no huddle and hurry up mixed in before the end of the game because it's just clear. I mean, when you look at it, that Eli Manning is a better player when he's in the hurry up, no tempo. And then another thing which we've talked about in the past is just not using jet sweep and not using the misdirection with players like Saquon Barkley and Odell Beckham Jr. It's just unacceptable for me if you look at what uh, Matt Nagy's done with really just not this not great pieces, Mitch Trubisky. Not an accurate passer. I just saw a stat today that said he was top five in uh, most passes that were deemed or landed inaccurately. I, I forgot the stat, but it's a least five accurate quarterback according to the metric. Um, you know, Tariq Cohen's an okay little fast player, nothing great. Taylor Gabriel, Allen Robinson's been injured, but you know they're finding a lot of success on offense with misdirection, with fake jet sweep, with jet sweep, a lot of the motion stuff and. That's just not something we're seeing. So to me, there's still a long way to go for him. Um, wh- what do you think? Is, you know, is there any? Do you think that is there any reason why we're not seeing that right now, or why we're not seeing any any up tempo at any time but the fourth quarter? The the tempo is a, is a kind of another thing. I don't really know. I, you know, I think that he doesn't want to use it because I think he wants to forge the identity around running the ball more. Uh, you can still run the ball more fast, you know, in tempo. It doesn't make a difference. Um, I'm not really sure there. On the motion and the jet sweep and the misdirection, um, at this stage, you're just not going to see it. And guys can complain about that. But so one of the big things that jet motion does is it'll get your safeties to shift. If it's too high, jet motion generally shifts to um, – will make a shift to a single high because the most defenses count that jet motion guy as a guy in the backfield, hence two running backs, hence they shift down to to single high. Uh, I think in getting back to this point about Eli Manning, I don't think Shermer wants to, I don't think Eli Manning can handle any more movement. I think he wants, I think Eli Manning is best when he's running hurry up when, against the static defense. And I think, I think Shermer kind of gets that and that he doesn't want Manning to have to account for anything after the snap. Like we said before in podcast, defenses are doing a lot of things just at the snap and after the snap to, to, to be frank, fuck with Eli Manning. And I think that's partially why he does better in tempo because they can't do that as easily. And the second part is 
I think Shermer doesn't want any motions or shifts. If you look at it, he, he's only shifting in this game. He's using no motions whatsoever. I don't think he – I think he wants the last picture that Eli sees is to be the same defense when Eli basically catches the ball and shotgun or takes the ball back and, and under center. So I think it's a it's a quarterback thing, and it's a trying to get the best from your quarterback at this point in his career. That's fair. I can see that too. But, I mean, I just don't I, – I understand that, Nick, but I just don't see why the tempo should not be mixed in earlier in the games. It's something Manning's always done well with. He's still doing well with now. So, um, But we'll move on from that to, to another topic from this game of some plays that we saw on the All-22 and then another guy saw a different way, the Baldy breakdown. So we'll start – with Saquon Barkley, Baldy breakdowns, um, you know, Bald, Baldinger, Brian Baldinger did a breakdown of a play that he thought, you know, Barkley should plant his foot and explode through the hole for a touchdown. I agree with that. I don't think that's Barkley's game necessarily. But one thing that that reminded me of, Nick, and I want to bring this back because it's something we brought up on one of our very first podcasts. When we discussed what this offense would look like, and we talked about what Shermer did in Minnesota, where he ran a ton of outside zone. And we looked at the draft and we said, your first two picks, the main assets they had this offseason were Saquon Barkley, a guy who's had success running behind power scheme, and Will Hernandez, a guy who's had success blocking power scheme. Why are we still seeing so much outside zone in this offense? It's, it's similar to what he did in Minnesota. I get it, but it doesn't necessarily fit the personnel. And this goes back to what we were proud, to what fans were promised, what, you know, media, what everybody was promised, that Shermer's the type of coach who curtails his scheme to the talent around him, not the opposite way around. So why do you think we're seeing, still seeing so much outside zone versus kind of those power plays? And again, remember the play against the Eagles, the big Barkley run was sprung from a Hernandez pull on a power play. So what, you know, what do you think is going on there with the run game still? If we still have the only thing I would just say is I, I don't I disagree. I don't think outside zone is a foundation is a foundational part. I think it's sprinkled in. If I I've charted all plays, I would throw outside zone. I'm just guessing because I don't have the numbers in front of me, somewhere around the fifteen to twenty percent area. Okay, he so is, correct me if I'm wrong. Where's where are we leading? So inside zone? Inside all tight zone, tight zone to the mid zone. And mid sure, that's I didn't mean outside zone, actually. I take that back because even even when you look back at I remember Pro Football Focus did the charting on this of what he ran in Minnesota, it was it was more inside and tight zone. You're right, correct. And I've actually made that point many times. Most people assume it's inside zone because they think he's he's closer to Shanahan. It's not the case at all. Yeah, yeah, no, I get I get that totally. That was a, a misspoke on my part, but the point is, it's still not power, right? I mean, what percentage is pat of there are they low? Is if probably is lower than outside zone it's well, five, five, five to so ten why is he not curtailing the scheme to the talent around him is my question for you and that is more of a <laughs> it's more of a, it's it's the it's the line it's the it's the line it's a line coach question it's okay um the other side of it is it's a it's kind of what you said it's like you know, if you have bigger guys, you want to run power. Well, here's the deal. Inside zone is close to power because you're talking about combination blocks. Most people on tape would not be able to tell the difference between duo, which is a gap scheme, and inside zone, which is a combo, which is a zone, a zone blocking scheme. There are many differences, most of them having to do with the running back. So the what they're running is close in that side, in that's in that standpoint, but from that standpoint, but the is there though that you know, they're not pulling and it's not power. It's not kind of an in-your-face right. rushing attack. It's a, you know, it's a it's a struggling rushing attack with a running back that has a habit of breaking and cutting to space, right. which is which is great. That produces his awesome runs, but consistently, you know, there are runs that he does leave on the board. But, again, this is a fine art in terms of getting him to, to, to run basically, quote-unquote. It's not just between the tackles. It's to, it's to stay play-side. So stay within the structure of the offense and understand how to negotiate that landscape, which, by the way, just a weird segue, but the Tampa Bay running back does that very well. Peyton Barber does that very well. But guess what? Peyton Barber's not a guy you draft number two overall, and he's not a guy who's not going to be a high-priced free agent. No offense to him. Um, so it's, 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 it's a balance. Within that, yeah, you want to create more space for this guy. I continually think it's getting him in space. So you have to, you have to scheme ways to get him in space then let him do his thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And I think it has to do with, with them finding an identity and finding the right way of, of attacking the scheme. But a lot of guys were kind of knew that going into this year, it was going to be a lot of inside zone. I just didn't think it was going to, it would be this bland basically. Right. And I mean, listen, I get it. It's I'm taking a, I'm taking something that should be way more complicated and I'm simplifying it. But to me, simple, the simple fact is 
It does not look like the running back you invested a number two overall pick in. You made the foundation of your offense, essentially, by doing so. Is that comfortable running behind this blocking scheme? That's all I'll say. And I don't think that I don't think that should be the case in week 10 of his of the rookie season. I don't. I think he should be more comfortable behind it. And I think it's because the Giants are doing a lot of things differently than what he did at Penn State. Um, but I digress. I mean, maybe, you know, the long-term goal is we get him used to what we want to do from a blocking standpoint. And instead of, you know, curtailing it to what he can do right now. And that's fine. That's a whole nother, that goes into a whole deeper coaching philosophy uh, argument that it, that we don't need to get into right now. But another play Baldinger broke down that's now making its waves on Giants Twitter is, um, I don't even know really what point of the game this was. It was a, a pass- the, the second quarter. Sorry to interject. <laughs> Good. Uh, second quarter passing play with Manning where he came off the first read, which was Evan Ingram, which was covered well by Richard Sherman, good thing he didn't throw that. It would have been intercepted, I think. Um, Check down to a running back instead of seeing a wide-open Odell Beckham Jr. breaking on the over route. Now, I 100% fully blame Manny. This is not – even though me and Nick have gone over before that Shermer's entire offensive scheme is half-field reads, and he was coming from the other side, Beckham. But, you know, you still as an NFL – as a great NFL quarterback, I should say, as an elite one, which he's not. But, you know, if you are an elite one, you see that pass and you make the big play. But all I'm saying is for this, because people are going nuts about this play, is like, are you going to try to convince me that the people going nuts about this play have watched the all 22 of all nine games of all 31 other NFL quarterbacks or however many have played this season in every single snap and that they've never seen this happen before with any other quarterback for a player a few plays a game? I mean, the, the best quarterbacks probably aren't doing it, Nick, but... What do you think? Do you think this is like, what do you think of that whole breakdown and the whole aftermath from it? You know, um, just a quick correction. That is actually a boot. So this is a, uh, this is a, it's not a half filled read per se. Um, Beckham's the second guy in the progression, or at least he should be um, the second read in the progression. Uh, this one, this one's tough just because um, I'm going to say a few things. This may come off bad. Baldy, when you throw a play in slow motion and say something is bad, is bad, is bad, is bad, is bad, that's not really analysis. Um, that's just him complaining at a bad play. So he's complaining at a bad play. His point that he's making, having charted a lot of these plays, I mean, I have four or five of these for Manning easy a game where he's not – where he's his vision, for whatever reason, he's not he's not letting it's, – it's a, it's a combination of many things. It's not just one thing. It happens frequently. It's kind of one of the biggest reasons why I thought he should have been pulled two games ago. Um, I, I don't know why Baldy's making the point now. You know, that was a, it was a miss. He had another one that was even worse, just two drives after to Evan Ingram, where he just he doesn't see him on a crossing route. It was almost actually it was almost exactly the same flight concept. Um, he his vision is not. You know, he's he 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 stuck to a first read on that play, and then getting to a second read for years has been an issue for him. You know, I thought much better this year because the offense is, is simpler. Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it, but it's not something where it's something where you see mistakes. It's just part of his mistake, his, 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 you know, group of mistakes or, you know, his, his, his potential for mistakes. And he has the potential on the next down to throw a great ball. So that's the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Um, and it's on this game, I would call it about five or a six in the Carolina game. I think it was about a nine, a scale of one to 10 out of nine. So I don't know why Baldy's making the point now. It's, it's kind of been on tape for weeks. Yeah, and again, I'm not defending Eli Manning here. I get it. I understand all these points that are being made. I just don't know for a fact that, you know, this is not happening with other quarterbacks in the NFL. Joe Flacco has had the, is one of the least pressured quarterbacks in the NFL, and that Baltimore Ravens offense doesn't move the ball through the air. So I'm sure there's been some misreads there too. Um, but I'll digress. I'll move on. Uh, to another hot topic is Landon Collins, who on the broadcast angle of this game looked like he was getting torched over and over by Kittle. But you may have seen something else when you looked at the All-22, Nick. What do you, what do you say about that? Yeah, there's <laughs> there's like there's a lot of – this was a funny setup just because defending George Kittle is a beast. He's 6'2", 250. You don't realize how damn good he is right now. Right, and just because he's a fifth-rounder, guess what? That doesn't mean shit. Like, the guy is a top-six tight end, arguably. Like And a former wide receiver, too. Right, and so – and it's an interesting – because we're going to touch on this later, but I'm going to hark on this. He wins quickly. Running quickly in the route is dangerous. And he has the most yak yards, I believe, of all tight ends. I think PFF had that stat today, the tweet I saw. So he wins early. So a guy that wins early, it's like, holy shit, Like this is a hard matchup for anyone. 
um, of all plays. So he had uh, the way I'm counting this is he had 12 targets. Two of those were penalties, so two of those get negated. Officially, the box score shows 10 targets. He had nine receptions. Of those, one was man, bona fide man coverage with Landon Collins on him. Just one. There was only three total. There are nine others. And the others are where it gets interesting. It's a mixture of pattern match, zone, and everything else. The plays that you saw in zone like where Collins is making the tackle, he's like either coming from the other side of the field or it's like some level of play where it wasn't really his fault. One of them you right. have – you know, like you have guys slipping. You have all different types of, sh- of stuff that happens in zone. That is what it is. Where he he certainly had some weak plays, that was for sure. But it wasn't something where it's like, hey, he's getting torched, he's getting torched, he's getting torched. And this is a, it was a scenario where I wish – we can't see what's going on in the backfield. I wish the guys in the broadcast tape could be able to at least point that out, that, hey, like it's different every time. Maybe it's too hard to show to see with the naked eye. Anyway, the point is that I actually saw this as a point of strength in Betcher's play calling because he didn't have a great matchup for Kittle. By the way, no real team has a great matchup for a guy. Yeah. And he's able to, in the second half, he keeps on throwing multiple, all different types of coverages. He throws cover four at him and it doesn't work. So he moves on to something else. And it's just a constant off balance. And if you notice, he is not on the box score on the fourth quarter. Yeah. When, they, when, they, when they needed a score, he was basically covered up by a mixture of things. Landon Collins played better in man coverage. They had a, they had a little bit of help with rat defenders underneath. So the slant was not really there. The ability to win quickly wasn't really there. They were terrified of the deep ball at that point then, and they, they handled that well too. You know, basically, just to put it simply, Mullins had to go elsewhere, and he did. He, you know, they moved the ball a little bit, but it was one of those things where when it counted, he was shut down. I count that as a, as a good thing. Um, and just overall, this is a really funky stat that no one probably wants to hear. But the Giants are seventh overall in DVOA when defending uh, tight ends and pass, which just sounds nuts. But to me, with the with the with the guys that they have in in in, in camp or in, in on the team, that's pretty amazing for Betcher because I I wouldn't have put them in the top fifteen just guessing off the top of my head. Yeah, no doubt, and I do like that a lot. I think it goes unnoticed a lot what Betcher does um, in game adjustments wise, and with all the different map pattern match and all the different things he does in defensive coverage that we never really saw from more of the simplified. Uh, defensive game plans for guys like Spagnolo and Perry Fuel and the guys who came before them. But I will say this with, I do think that I hope Betcher stays soft and doesn't get a head coach interview. And it's probably not going to happen after how poor the giants have played this year overall, but, um, or he might get an interview. I don't think he'll get a job, but I will say this. If you look back, Nick, cause this is something I've noticed. I was doing a little, little extra research and I was looking back at Collins in 2016 during his, in my opinion, the year he should have won defensive player of the year. And he was used very differently with Spagnuolo than he's used with Betcher. Betcher, especially in the second half of the season, or I, or I should say the second half of the games the Giants have played so far, has used him more around the line of scrimmage, which is fine. I get it. He makes a lot of plays there. But Collins was really good in pass coverage, in deep co- deeper coverage, during that 2016 season with, the, with Steve Spagnuolo. He made a lot of breaks on the ball for interceptions, big plays that changed games. The Rams game is not one without his two interceptions. Um, and that season, that 2016 season when they won 11 games and he was just a different player in that scheme. Do you think that, you know, it's possible that they're not really utilizing him to the best of his ability? Uh, I actually had him in last year as not, I had, I had some weaker grades for him in coverage, um, more in zone coverage specifically. Um, I, I think that they want him to be flexible and versatile. I think he's okay. Well, the one thing I have to question, and no one's going to get this because no one's going to, you know, get him in a room with truth serum. I'm a little wondering if he's banged up on some level. Yeah. First step does not look strong. Yeah. Or fast. And so that's where. And, I, and again, this is. I'm not. I don't want to start anything, but I just don't. It just. It looks different. So to your point that he looks different, I agree. But I don't know if it's because of schematics. I would look at it or use. I would look at it. Whereas like. You know, the, I think this also ties over how many huge hits have we seen? You know, how many huge hits were I was able to find on Twitter in 2017? So, and I'm not saying, hey, he's, he's playing like shit. It's like, no, he's he's not as good as he was, but is it for something else that we don't know? Um, I don't know that. The one thing I do like about him, which is really interesting, kind of cool, being a Bama guy, right? Like, he's very familiar with pattern match. He's very familiar with understanding the ins and outs of the higher level secondaries that Betcher is running here. So I think that that's a big deal for me, as it, especially for the safety position. I know we don't 
want to like put a big contract in yet. But as a 24 year old, I still think there's a lot of room for development there and that's okay. You know, it's not a finished product and I think that it can get better. I know that there are glaring weaknesses that have to get better, but it's not something where, you know, I don't think it's complete misuse yet. I, I don't, I still haven't seen him at his best this year. And I'm wondering if, if, if it's injury. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you look at the 2016's uh, tape and you see a, a, a much, I guess, quicker player, a guy who's playing, I think could also be, he was just playing a lot more confidence in that defense that year. They were getting a much better pass rush that year. There were there were other factors in play that year that aren't in play. You know, there was better safety play next to him. There was factors that made his job easier and helped him play with more confidence. So I still have faith there. But to another guy who, you know, maybe I should have a little bit less faith in, and that's Evan Ingram, the Giants 2017 first round pick, a player they took before Ryan Ramchek, who's soon to be emerging as an all pro right tackle, has been excellent for the New Orleans Saints dominant offensive line. Um, a guy who came into the NFL with 4-4-1 speed, which is insane for a tight end. I know he's more of a hybrid tight end wide receiver at 230, uh, Evan Ingram, but 4-4-1 speed, 37-inch vertical. Had some really good tape at Ole Miss with Chad Kelly as his quarterback. But why, you know, I'm trying to find out, Nick, now why he's struggling. Is it a factor of one? He may not be as good of a football player as he is an athlete the Jerry Reese syndrome, as we would call it. Two, the play calling is not right. He's not being used properly in the passing game. Three, <laughs> he's simply not playing enough snaps, and that's a problem. Or, or four, is it a quarterback, or is, a, is, is, is the issue simply Eli Manning? Where do you stand here? And then I'll dive into where on that. Again, thinking that there's never always one thing and that it's – but he this within a personnel thing, a specific question, I think you can get a little, little tighter – um, in terms of being specific, what I find interesting is, is you said he's 230, which is probably right from the metric that you're reading. But on pro football reference, they got him at 240. And I'm wondering, did he try to gain a little weight to block a little better this year to put on some size? Um, which, which could be a reason why, why, as I segue into what I saw from the last couple of weeks or what he played in the last couple of weeks, I guess it's this game and then in previous games or just watching his tape. Um, he's a little sluggish. Uh, early in his breaks, especially when he's a uh, when he's coming from um, from the three point position, he does not win quickly. Yeah. His, his strength is his fourth and fifth gear down the field, and there his he, he's a pretty good. I like his hips when he comes in and out of breaks. He's like pretty fluid there. But in the first ten yards, I mean, there are multiple examples of, of from this past game where like he's he's not winning against linebackers that are two hundred fifty pounds, two sixty. So I'm not. I don't. I don't know what that is. I didn't see his tape at Ole Miss. I didn't follow him. I watched his tape last year. I noticed this last year where I thought as a lone X, he wasn't winning a lot. And I just thought that his initial step was just kind of so-so. And I think that's hard for a tight end to just get that. It, there's a lot of nuances of route running that that he's not getting. And, I, you know, I don't know if I really want to go this way, but I'll go there. I've seen this with a few other the Giants too, right? Like Odell Beckham doesn't run the, the best routes. He relies on his athleticism to get there. The guy who runs his, the best routes is Sterling Shepard. But I'm not seeing that across the board for any for any other players. Um, so I'm wondering if that type of detail is what they need. They need that type of help. You know, I think that this is a player who's still developing. But I I do question. You know, right now, if you draft a guy in the first round as a tight end, I think you either has to he has to be like the best pass catcher in the world, or very good, or the best blocker in the world. And right now, Ingram's stuck in between, and he's neither for both. And it's one of those situations where he's losing snaps because Coleman is now here, and I think specifically in this game, we'll see if it was just a game plan or not. But, you know, it, Ellison was taking most of those snaps from him. So if he's not a good enough blocker, I don't know. It's it's a tough it's a tough in-between spot to be. It's a tough spot for sure. And, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. I, I've seen that as well. He's really not that quick off the snap. And that's, you know, and that's really where Kittle dominates, by the way, um, and guys like that. But, you know, he didn't play, he played about, I think it was 33 snaps that he played Ingram. Was that right? In the 30 range. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Benny Fowler had about 20, either 26 or 29. So I really don't think you want Benny Fowler on the field. I'd rather, I think, you know, the ideal the ideal goal, if you have someone like Ingram, you spent a first round pick on with 4-4-1 speed and a 37-inch vert and decent game tape at Ole Miss where he's productive, you want to have 12 personnel with him kind of as a hybrid 11. It's kind of like a hybrid 11 with him on the field. That was the goal with Ingram, and you're just not seeing it. And, you know, as we move on past this, it's getting to the point of concern for sure, I would say, for somebody you invest such an incredible asset on. When you have a 2-7 and seven team, 
part of the reason you may not be winning is if your first round picks aren't contributing. Eli Apple, not on the team. Eric Flowers, not on the team. And now Evan Ingram, not making the impact that people, you know, you know, that they might need him to. So that's something to keep an eye on as we move forward. But on the flip side, a positive, I think Josh Morrow is actually emerging as somebody interesting to keep an eye on down the stretch. He had a really strong grade according to pro football focus this past week. Um, uh, was one of the highest graded Giants defenders, one of the highest graded run defenders since he started playing a lot of snaps for the New York Giants. Um, so what do you make of that? Uh, of what do you make of, of Josh Morrow? Is he somebody that can, you know, re-sign maybe this coming off season, somebody who can be a part of the solution? Yeah, definitely a part of the solution. I like his flexibility. I think he's flashing more of the or he flashed in recent games more of the traits that he had in 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 Arizona, but just more consistently. Uh, definitely had his best game this his most recent game. You know, multiple notes on him making plays here. Um, yeah, definitely do. I think that it's, you know, it's, um, I almost think that he's not a flashy sign. So people want, obviously the pass rushing element is not there. So I think people would almost maybe be down if they wanted a guy like that, but the same token flip the script, you need two lines of, of, of defensive linemen. I think you need that depth and that's a big part of the team. So I would definitely, I think he's, as it stands right now, he's, his star is pointing upward for that, for that, you know, for a spot on that, in that, in that two line scheme. And then another guy who's, Stars pointing upward. Lorenzo Carter, the Giants' uh, third-round pick, six foot six, two fifty. Awesome, awesome athleticism. A guy who Thomas McGahey right now, the special teams coach, actually compared to Jason Pierre-Paul, which is super interesting, just from an athletic standpoint. And did mention something interesting today, McGahey and his media availability. Basically, said he won't be taking the full complement of special team snaps anymore. He's graduated. He said from that, which to me signifies that. He'll be using that. The Giants will be using him more on the defensive side of the ball. He saw more snaps than usual um, last week against the 49ers. Once again, graded out really well. I mean, he had a series, in my opinion, where he basically took over. When first and 10, they threw the little screen pass to the fullback. He stopped it for negative one. Then on second and 11, they threw a pass to Kittle. He stopped it and tackled it for negative one. Now it's third and 12, and the Giants are getting the ball back after a missed third and long. So, to me, at this point, let him go. Let him rip. Um, what do you think? Is there any reason not to play Carter? Uh, certainly not because of his flexibility. He's uh, His ability to blood off, to drop off into coverage, he made some key stops, too, in this game. I keep on saying it. I wrote in my notes when I first watched him, but he's like a caffeinated Gumby. And and when he's on, he's very on. and He's got good play speed. I think overall his technique still as a consistent pass rusher is still not there. Seeing some, seeing some good rushes, but – you want to see the moves evolve, and I think that'll get. I think that'll increase again. Just as more, more everything happens for him experience-wise. Specifically, too, I think with a, I think when players go from their freshman to their sophomore year, their first to their second year, and they have that off season where they can actually just relax for a little bit. You know, they've been on, they've been going crazy since April, right? You know, so I think in general that those players are going to be, guys like this are going to benefit who need additional technique expertise um, to get better. And I definitely see that they're going higher and. And yeah, I, in terms of giving him more snaps at this point in the season, you know, um, I think he's comfortable in coverage enough, obviously, that there's really no reason not to. Um, and there's no one on the, uh, to be fair, there's no one too on the roster that's really challenging him. And not, let me rephrase that. He's better than most of the uh, options that they have currently. So absolutely, uh, Green means go. Yeah, I think that, that's a player I'm really excited about moving forward. And then another guy who had a great game, Michael Thomas. We talked a little bit about him earlier. But he's definitely making more of an impact uh, in pass coverage now and on defense than initially expected. So that's a good sign. And that was kind of maybe the reason they decided not to release him for that extra conditional or uh, compensatory draft pick, which they're going to get anyway now for releasing Omame. Um, but did you have anything else you wanted to add on Thomas before we move on to the Bucks preview? No, just I'm just a little surprised they don't use him more in the slot because he's got a lot yeah. of good it's there. So I, he was mostly when they play big nickel with three safeties, he's usually the free safety and they like Riley down. Now they like Riley down because he's a better blitzer, um, but only marginally. And I think Thomas is, is like a very good in space and a, and a veteran for that matter. Um, you know, so I, I kind of, I'm just surprised a little bit of that, but, but overall a, a good spot for him. Yep. No doubt there. Um, but let's move on then. Let's move on to the Buccaneers preview. Um, what did what did you see? What have you seen from this Buccaneers team? Do you think this is a game where the Giants could actually get on a little bit of a win streak here? Is that possible? <laughs> it's definitely going to be possible. This team's in a little bit of flux. Um, you know, I think it's in flux in a few ways. Number one, the the, the key thing. I mean, the all these previews are going to kind of get a little tighter just because in the end you want to see good fundamental football for the Giants on both sides. But 
with it with the, with the Tampa Bay, the big thing to understand is that their position players are some are arguably the best in the league. So the secondary is really going to be tested. Um, with that said, Fitzpatrick is arguably one of the streakier quarterbacks in the league. And when it goes bad, it goes really bad. And when it goes bad in the red zone, it's you know he misses high, and you have a chance for turnovers. It's it's a little bit like playing Cam Newton, but Newton's, he's not obviously not nearly as good as Newton. He's going to cough the ball up on some level. He's going to cough the ball up, so it's it's a chance for turnover turnovers. Um, their play calling is in a bit of flux. Dirk Cutter, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce his name. He's the head coach. He took over for Todd Munkin in terms of play calling. Todd Munkin is the newly hired offensive coordinator. Todd Munkin is a guy that's really cool to study. I don't know what's going on there. The game, the game was was much more bland that they lost this past week um, against the Redskins. So for me on the offensive side for Tampa Bay, it's 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 position players that are very good. It's going to test the secondary, but it is a it's a it's a front five that I think you can get after, and it's a quarterback that can make some mistakes. Yeah, no doubt. And when you look at this team, um, the offensive production has really tailed down uh, from a scoring standpoint in the more recent uh, Fitzpatrick starts. And that just goes kind of along the lines of his entire career. He's always been a much better quarterback uh, during the warm weather months uh, with the Jets. That one season, he took them to a decent, almost the playoffs. He really tailed off uh, in November and and especially in December. Um, So if it's cold, as it is now expected to be this weekend in the metal uh, or at MetLife Stadium, um, I do expect him to struggle a little bit, but he does have a really quick release. Fitzpatrick, he likes, he sees what he likes and he throws it and they do have good skill position players. But I mean, it's aside from those skill position players, uh, Nick, I really am not too excited about this Tampa Bay Ross. I don't think it's a team that the Giants can't beat. They struggle mightily from a run blocking standpoint, according to Pro football focus, uh, one of the worst run blocking teams in the NFL. They're a little better in pass protection. Their secondary is absolutely atrocious. Some of the worst safety play in the NFL. Um, they do get a little bit of a pass rush, uh, which is surprising. Jason Pierre-Paul has eight sacks on the season. The Giants will be facing him in a Pierre-Paul versus Buccaneers. Basically, almost exclusively use Pierre-Paul at the right defensive end position. Um, and then uh, as a run def- uh, as a team in run defense, they're pretty streaky. They had a good game against the Bears where they shut down that ru- that rushing offense. But aside from that game and maybe you know the Browns before they went to Nick Chubb, they really have struggled. Um, to, to, to stop the run as well. So there's a lot of weaknesses on this Buccaneers team I think the Giants can exploit. To me, this is actually the easiest matchup they've had all season, um, personally. I don't know what to on that. What? Interesting. Yeah, the only thing I would just add is I think that guys may be surprised, fans may be, be surprised that Peyton Barber, they're running back. Uh, the guy does not go down. Pretty high competitive toughness grade. Um, you know, he's he's he runs between the tackles really well. This he he will challenge their tackling ability and their ability. You know, um, either Riley plays or not, the angles are going to be tested. This guy's actually he he kind he flashes on tape, and it's kind of nuts because he's not he's kind of coming out of nowhere there. But yeah, the, on the defensive side of the ball, you know, Mike Smith was the coordinator. He was let go maybe two or three weeks ago. They're in flux. They've got talent on the defensive line. He couldn't get any pressure really at all. Um, sustained pressure. They had they flashed in sacks, but it's one of those things. It's kind of just a tough go, and I don't I don't even know who the coordinator is now. Even look, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, the, the, there's there's some real opportunity there. Um, their secondary plays tough, but definitely opportunity. Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right, so let's kick it over then to some of the fan questions from this week. We actually only got one question in. So again, guys, if you do enjoy the show, just do us a favor, throw us some more questions. I like this part of the show the best when we get some more interaction. Um, Obviously, I'll try to do a better job of asking it more in advance for the questions, but uh, usually I'll ask them on Twitter. So if you guys find us anywhere else than Twitter, if you find this podcast, just always hit me up on Twitter or you can email me. My my email is on my Twitter, wherever, however you want to do it. But let's get some more questions in for the shows going forward. But TFED asks this week, do you think that the Eli Apple and Damon Harrison trades were more for building the roster with those picks they got back or for trading up in the draft? Uh, for our next quarterback? Mm. I think you kind of don't know yet based upon the spot that you're at. I think the pro department knows, or sorry, the scouting department knows that they need more picks, right? The Giants have the least amount of picks, correct? I think I saw that on the, on the Twitters, on the interwebs. Um, I, I don't know yet. I think that the drafts were third. They're all third day, right? No, it was one second day. There are mostly later rounds. These are usually kickers when you attach for other type of trading options. I think it just gives them flexibility. Overall, they need their hand in the pot more more frequently. So because of the issues that Reese left them with. Um, so I think it's basically you don't really know yet. Um, I do think that, you know, if they're 
I think it depends on where they finish uh, in terms of being a, and what assets are the quarterback position for the top part of the draft. And we will see there, but right now I think it's a little early to tell. Yeah. I mean, on, I mean, they, I think the stat you saw Nick was actually what we went over earlier. They have the least remaining players from the draft, but they actually have the most draft picks in this coming 2019 draft class that they've had since the 2003 class where they landed uh OCU Minora in the second round, David Tyree in the sixth round. And, um, why am I blanking? Oh, David Deal in the fifth round. So, right. and that's assuming they'll get a fourth compensatory, a fourth round compensatory pick back for Patrick Omame release and for losing Justin Pugh in, in free agency, which I mean, according to over the cap will happen and over cap has been extremely accurate in these predictions. So I'm trusting it. So, yeah. So to answer T-Fed's question, I think it's kind of up in the air right now as well. They, they, my guess is they use it to trade up, knowing Gettleman. I mean, he wanted to pull the trigger on a trade up for Carter last year. He wanted to pull the trigger on a trade up for Hernandez last year. So it's going to happen this year. I know I know this guy. This guy doesn't like to trade back for picks. This guy is not. He's going to trade. I think he's going to trade up for sure. But what it also did was it cleared Harrison's uh, salary cap hit off the books, which to me had to be done. I hate to say it. Harrison's really dominant run stopper, but – you know, I'm starting to get on that train of how much does that really help a football team um, to have a dominant run stopper, especially when he's making, you know, 10 a double digit million per year uh, against the cat. And then Apple was just a bad, <laughs> no pun intended, like I said on the last podcast when we talked about it, a bad Apple. You just don't want him in that locker room. He's just he's just not the type of player you want. Um, and that really sucks. I need that type of person and that, you know, he can never recover from whatever he put out there in his rookie season. I mean, we're talking about somebody the Giants made a top 10 investment in, and he could have been a part of a franchise that's won four Super Bowls, but he wasn't. So moving on from that. Um, anyway, that's actually all the questions we got for today, and we I think we've done a good job here wrapping up. But, Nick, did you have anything other closing remarks you wanted to add in before we sign off? Negative, negative. Good to go on my front. All right. Well, then, as usual, guys, you can always find my work if you download the CBS Sports app and then just click – Giants is your favorite team. Hit notifications on. I promise you won't get more than one per day. Probably be the best. Whatever I whatever I put out there, that's my best content. Will will not be the notification. The notification will just be the news. But if you click the app and you go to the Giants page, it'll be all the articles I have up there um, on twenty four seven and cbssports.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Dan Schneier NFL. Uh, Nick, where can we find your work? Uh, work over at uh, Cover One on the Giants. There for X's and O's, uh, also inside the pylon, trying to be there in a, on a bi-weekly basis. And then on my Twitter handle, tmanic21, T-M-N, tmanic21 on Twitter, uh, I will basically be continually, anyone who wants breakdowns, questions, I'm there too for stuff that's more obviously filmed involved versus podcast questions, let me know and we'll go from there. Yeah, and I can promise you that both Nick and I will continuously not know how to spell our Twitter handles, but we'll never get that right. But at the same time, do us a favor, guys, please, please download these podcasts on iTunes as well. Give us a rating, a review. It really is going to help us make, and it will make a difference. So I thank you for those that have already done it. And I thank you for those that will do it. But on that note, we're going to sign off. And until next week, go guys. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.